Donald Trump wins the presidency. The, business the sun will rise in the morning, and America will still be the greatest nation on earth. Is upholding the president's travel ban. Recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It was a white lash against a black president. The Trump administration plan could erase the definition of transgender. 19 years old, open fire, then we will prosecute. You are fake news. Go ahead. When news like this is received from our neighbors in the South, news that is constantly abysmal, it's easy to feel good about the quality of life in Victoria. But is our city doing all it can to welcome a diverse range of people? Does Victoria's progressive narrative match up with the reality? Hello, and welcome to Taking Up Space, CFUV, 101.9 FM's intersectional feminist podcast broadcasting for Victoria. We acknowledge with respect the Lokongan and Sunchothan speaking people on whose traditional territory this podcast was produced, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I'm your host for this episode, Shar Johnston Carter. Today, we've reached out to women in different communities in Victoria to explore the relationships they hold with the city, and to investigate how supportive Victoria really is. We'll hear from two women whose communities have been the target of Trump's policies in the U.S., and another woman in Victoria who runs an equality consulting agency. We sent out our interviewer, Kate, to talk to one Victorian woman who experienced a racial incident during this summer. Uh, My name is Maggie, Maggie Collier. Maggie's lived in Victoria for six and a half years, and she's lived in BC since 2004. And I love the province. I love Victoria. I love the people. And uh, and I love Canada. Maggie was out with her family on the August long weekend, walking in downtown Victoria. They were in the Inner Harbor attending the Symphony Splash. It must have been Sunday, um, August 5th, I think. And um, so my ki- my children, my husband and I, we had been walking uh, for a bit and the children were getting really tired. They, we thought, okay, the first public bench, we found that we would rest there and then so they can have some ice or something to, to drink. And we finally um, found one free bench. Well, it wasn't free uh, completely. There, there was a lady sitting at the uh, the other end of the bench so it's a long bench and uh, we approached the lady and i asked her is it okay if my children sit down it's very sunny it's hot they just need to sit down for a bit and um, she said no you cannot sit and she stopped right there and um, i thought okay um i said oh um why can't they sit and um she said, well, because I'm saving it for friends that are coming later on. And I replied, I said, oh, no, 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 we're, in, I even smile. I said, no, 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 we're not staying. We're actually just moving along. But my kids are t- tired and uh, they just need to sit down. And uh, she insists, no, you can't sit. And uh, um, she says, move along. And she sort of shoo-shoo, like with her hands, wave at us to move. 
move along. And I turned, I said, but why? Like, your friends are not here. This is a public bench. You have one corner. My kids just need to sit. Like, I can sit and put them on my lap if you don't want them to, you know, to come close to you. She said, no, woman, move on. And um, I said, and based on what? So I started getting very curious. This has happened to me before. So similar situation. And back then I didn't react. I just moved, you know. And um, so my husband said, you know what? It's okay. You know, it's a beautiful day. There's music going on. Let's just go. And I took one step. I said, but wait, my kids, it, it hit me. My children are watching this. This is somebody who seems like a bully and decide that she's going to have the whole quote to quote in my head play yard or, or, or bench to herself and without any sort of reasoning. And so I turned back to her. I said, can you really give me a reason why you don't want us to sit here? She said, well, because I'm from here. And I said, oh, no, 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 we are Canadian. And it hit me that, oh, maybe she thought we were tourists. I said, but why would she, like, how did she identify me as a tourist? Thousands of people are walking down on that path that night and that day. Me, my family, why would she think that we are tourists? The way we look, it started to hit me. I said, well, are you saying that you don't think we are Canadian? She said, no, I am Canadian. I said, okay. Then I turned back. I said, are you saying, I keep trying to phrase the question in a way that I would get the answer that I I didn't want to hear. But at this point, there's no more turning back. So I, I asked her, I said, are you saying that you are more Canadian than I am after I've told you that I'm Canadian and therefore you have the right to decide who gets to sit here and who doesn't? She said, she stood up right in my face she said of course i do i was born here go back where you come from and i turned to my husband i said well that's it now i'm not gonna move my husband said oh my god <laughs> he's very quiet and uh, so this is when it took uh, a whole new turn I said, you sit on the other end and we sit over here, but I'm going to sit down. I was about to leave, but you just made it clear that you don't think I am Canadian enough. You look at me, you decide that the way I look, I'm not Canadian. That is racist. That's racial profiling because the only thing that looked different about me is the way I look, my skin color. So you decide who I am that I'm not Canadian enough. And that, sorry, I'm getting emotional. No, no. That is hurtful. And you're doing it in front of my kids. So I grabbed my youngest daughter. I said, I'm going to sit down. Well, I wanted to put my daughter down. And she swing me. She pushed me with my daughter. And luckily, I think there was a wall or a bike rack, something there that sort of blocked me from falling. And my husband was right behind me. And I turned to her angrily. I said, if you push me one more time, if you touch me, I'm going to hit you back. And I will hit you really hard. <laughs> and, uh, and my daughter was now crying. And um, so there was a gentleman far at the back and who said, oh, okay, well, um, started waving at me. He said, come, 
sort of telling me to come sit next to him. His bench was sort of free. And um, because I had already positioned myself and put my daughter on my lap. And the gentleman kept calling me. So I stood up. I said, I need to go explain to the gentleman why I've made the decision to sit down. And uh, so... I walk, when I stood up, my sunglasses fell and she grabbed my sunglasses. I said, give me my sunglasses. I started literally laughing. She said, no, it's no longer yours. And I said, well, you do have an entitlement issue. You do have an entitlement issue. First, you're obsessed with this bench. We can leave you the bench. Give me my, my, my sunglass. She wouldn't give it to me. I walk up to the gentleman who... Um, who offered me to come sit next to him? I told him the point at this. Uh, the, my point at this stage is not really about whether or not I want to sit. I'm angry. I'm upset that she looked at us and decided. So I explained the whole scenario to the. He said, "Oh, that's sad." So we returned. I returned back to the bench, and uh, I said, "Give me my sunglass." And by then, I think some of the by uh, um, bystanders had. Uh, when she hit me the first time, someone had called the security. And um, so she saw the security coming, really. You could tell they were coming in a group, and the police was about maybe five steps or ten steps behind them. I was standing, she was sitting, and I could see the police coming. And then the moment the, the gentleman, uh, the security, the, um, the symphony splash, I think, security team got there, she grabbed, she took my sunglasses and hit me really hard with it. I hit her right back. I had promised her I would hate her. And she goes, oh, you hurt me. And the gentleman comes to me, not to the lady who he saw hitting me. He comes, oh, what's going on? Why are you hitting her? I said, no, she hit me first. And uh, my husband said, no, 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 she hit my wife first. And... um I explained the situation one more time and the gentleman said, well, because she was here first, you guys will have, you, you will kind of have to move. And today's a busy day. We don't want any, you know, any issue. So why don't you, is it okay if you guys, I said, I stop him right there. I said, who are you to make that decision? Is this a public bench? He said, yes. Is her name written on it? Her, her friends, as far as I know, we've been here more than half an hour no friends had showed up. We could have been gone a long time ago. I said, so I started referring to the United States, the racism that is happening there, and that we shouldn't let it happen. We, sh we should not be allowing things like this to happen. If someone does it, we have to call them on it. And, and sure enough, the police arrive and they interview both sides and they ask for witnesses. Of course, a few people went by and talked to the police. Now, they, I think they had the proof that I was not the, um, uh, she was not a victim as she now tried to display it. And um, they talked to her and um, they said, well, it's kind of hard uh, at this point um, because we were not here when it happened. Would you still like to sit? I said, are you saying to share the bench? Um like I, I tried, it was more the feeling I got was more like they didn't know what they were doing. Honestly, I can tell you they they were not equipped for that kind of um event to take place that day or, you know, and I don't blame them. Sometimes the police and I feel like maybe if they were they had funding for that kind of uh, 
um, um, issues, they would be handling it better because had I been a young black man um, taking over whole bench, pushing people and shoving here and there, um, it would have been a different story. And we've seen it on TV, but here was somebody hitting me twice at least. And um, none of the bystanders, nobody acted. Nobody came and said, women, you need to stop. Nobody. Not only was Maggie disappointed in the lack of response from bystanders, she was also disappointed by the police. In the past, we might have been satisfied with a police presence diffusing a situation. But in a progressive city like Victoria, we should be striving for a more satisfying and educational resolution. Maggie wishes the police had been better trained to address the situation. The only person who saw when to call, I think, was when I hit her back, they went to call. So to me, and then the police comes, um, you've talked to the people, you've learned the truth. Otherwise, you would have been giving me some sort of a tough, tough talk. They didn't do that. But yet they didn't do that with her. And I don't know the whole conversation that happened with her, but I, w- I would have loved to say, hey, um, to hear it them offering me, would you like to file any case? Because she did hit you. Like, it's a, so I don't know what is defined as a racial, um, as a racial crime. I, I don't know all the details, but it left me thinking that there's more. We need a dialogue. We need to talk more about situa- uh, issues like this. And so that our children, all Canadian children, are, have a, a safe and, um, and healthy environment to grow up and I I worry about my kids I really do so but I'm grateful that I have this platform to share my story with you and um, and I hope if anyone out there feeling that um, they've been abused they've been through situations where the police has not you know or the lawmakers have not acted the way they should I think you need to speak. We need to have this dialogue. We can find other venues to, to express our, our opinion, our, our voice. So, Now that some time has passed, Maggie wonders how the same situation would have been handled if it were a white woman being harassed and a black woman pushing her off a bench. Would the police response have been different? Uh, I think there has to be a way for our law makers and um, and police and, and police officers to to be able to handle um racism uh racist incidents and um my concern is that i i i often like to reverse the roles had it been and quite often just to step back a little bit um quite often black or minority, some minority groups are known to be loud and to be vocal and uh, and uh, and aggressive in a way. But that is, have we ever stopped and say why? Why would a, a black woman um, be so angry in um, uh, in downtown Victoria and crying and upset and um, maybe because she has taken in too much and maybe. She doesn't feel like the police will do anything anyway. And sure enough, the police did not do much, right? But if we reverse the role, had that been a black person hitting a white woman in front of her children, 
We would have been talking about trauma. We would have been talking about lawsuit, hate crime or criminal, you know, criminal record. So I, I think there's a, we need to start, like I, I know some communities are already doing it. And I know Victoria, there's a lot of uh, um, um, multicultural and anti-racism activities, but I think we need to sort of uh, start a dialogue and continue and um, and find more venues to, to talk about it. Maggie thinks that these kinds of incidents are still important to recognize, even though they might seem relatively small when compared to the things happening in other places. Well, as Canadian, we I think that's something that we, like, because we are always, I feel, this is not a fact. <laughs> um, I feel that we are always comparing ourselves to our neighbors down south. We think, oh yeah, we're better, we're better, oh yeah. So we are the exception. We um, we have better, we had better slavery, I guess. We had better colonialism. We had better, so I feel like we are the exception, but I think it's a myth, I, I agree. And um, quite often the racism, the I, I, I prefer the lousy racism where it is, I know it is often um, deadly in down south, and I know it is detrimental to the communities that have faced those incidents and violence. But at the same time, at least the world is knowing about it. Now, in Canada, I feel, in Victoria precisely, I feel is that uh, we don't even know. It's like... Um, it's non-existent, but those that are affected by it, we know, we know it exists. So um, my situation was not as worse as those that I've seen on TV, but if you see a uh, an incident, it does not have to be racism. It could be just, you know, an abusive comment that somebody makes to a young girl or a young man. You need to do something about it. Tell that person to stop, to stop being a bully. And um, we can all do better. We can all do a little bit to make the, our world a better place. Yeah. I think a big issue also going along with exactly what you said with us always comparing ourselves to the states and mm -hmm. kind of letting that be good enough, just being a, a slightly better than somewhere that is so <laughs> awful. awful. How can we be proud of just being better than that? We should yeah. hold ourselves to a whole different standard. But then also how you say how it needs to be kind of a conversation of not just speaking better about marginalized people, but let's all speak about each other positively and let's not allow that kind of hateful speech for any group of people, right? So Maggie doesn't think it's productive to define our progressiveness by what's going on in the States. And she is motivated to keep fighting for a more inclusive Victoria to keep her kids safe. What I worry about now is the future of my girls and minorities that are growing up in Canada. That's what I worry about the most. And, uh, and I'm trying, I will try anything possible to make their world a better place. And if that includes um, dying in a process, I will, because I will not stand for racist uh, behavior or bullying, bullies or any sort of, any type of uh, abusive um, um, comments towards um, innocent victims. So, yeah. Well, would I have changed my behavior, maybe yes. I would not have hit her back the second time. I would not have. I would have let her have 
my sunglasses and then sue her. <laughs> I still sometimes feel like, but suing, you know, it's just, that would be just another ego, right? So I wanted to, I don't know if I would, I would have changed much. I don't think it got to a point. I said, I'm not moving until the police comes. I, I remember saying that loud. And, um, so no, I don't think I would have changed much. I, and going back on it, I don't think I overreacted. Uh, no, actually, yeah. I think I would have brought, I should have called the police station and made it my mission that the two police officers that were there, um, handle the next situation better. What if I had had, um, what if she had a gun? You know, what if she did attack me and harm me? What if I went home that night traumatized? And I was up till 4 a.m. I wrote my um, my post, my Facebook post um, around 4 a.m., I think. I just couldn't sleep. I was frustrated. And she ruined my whole day. And But here's the good thing. That same day, I'm walking along the waterfront, you know, um, the the sidewalk there mm-hmm. and i ran into this um beautiful jewelry designer and she saw me she sensed that i was really sad and this is just like 20 25 minutes after the event and we were just heading back to our car we were done we were walking slow back to our car and she said honey are you okay i said i'm okay my husband said no you're not and of course my tears started dropping and she said to me, what's wrong? Tell me. And I explained to her, I said, oh, no, we just had a racist incident and I'm not feeling good about it. She gave me the biggest hug. She does not know me. And then she gave me one of her <clears throat> design and she makes these beautiful crystal ornaments. And um, and I thought, OK, this is Canada. This is the country I fell in love with when I was eight years old. This is my home. And um, I was okay. So to answer your question, I'm glad I reacted the way. I'm glad I, I experienced the emotional rush to, 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 to do something about it. It was calculated emotional act. So, <laughs> so I'm glad I acted. I, don't, I would not change anything. Given Maggie's experience, we wanted to take a closer look at why Victoria's progressive stereotype exists and where our complacency might be coming from. It's tempting to think of Victoria as an enlightened sanctuary in a world of violence and intolerance. In the recent municipal election, Victorians voted in five women and four men. That's the third term in a row that women have outnumbered men on the council, and our elected candidates do represent a diverse population. One of the councillors is Black, and another is Chinese-Canadian. We also re-elected Lisa Helps, and her sexual orientation barely came up in the campaign. Politically speaking, Victoria is more left-leaning than most regions in BC, which is itself one of the most left-wing provinces in the country. From this position, Victoria seems like an inclusive city. We are a city of curbside composters and protected bike lanes. We removed a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald and gave our new library a Lokongan name. We've got an unnatural concentration of local breweries and micro-roasted coffee, and an abundance of ethically sourced fish and organically grown produce. 
On the surface, Victoria seems like a progressive place. But when we dig a little deeper, is that still true? Um, yeah, my name's Serena Bandar. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I work with the Anti-Violence Project, the Sexual Assault Center here at UVic. Um, I'm also a writer, and I'm mixed race, Punjabi, Welsh, Irish, British, and a few other things from England area. And I have been living on the territories of the Lokongan and Wasanich peoples for the last eight years. Um, before that, I was I grew up on um, uh, Cowichan and Malahat territories. Safe to say, Serena has a lot of experience with underrepresented communities in Victoria, and with gender diverse communities specifically both through her role with the Anti-Violence Project and also as an organizer for retreats for trans youth. She's dug deep into the work of building a more inclusive society. So we wondered what she thought of our question. Is Victoria's progressive stereotype true or not? I would say yes. Um, I've been involved in various capacities with different uh, aspects of the queer and trans community in Victoria, and I've seen a great deal of support in some respects. I've seen a great deal of support for the like the annual Pride Festival that happens, you know, the parade and all that. Um, and I've seen um, good support for uh, queer social spaces like Crush, um, the monthly dance party at the Victoria Fence Center. And I've also seen some double standards and some limitations produced by privilege and uh, social oppressions um, that have meant that, for example, um, certain voices have been invisibilized or spoken over. While Serena fears the emergence of blatant fascism in Trump's America, it's also got her thinking about the more subtle acts of discrimination and exclusivity particularly from people who identify as progressive, but don't actively work to help underprivileged communities. When we talk about like the vast difference between like, when we say that there's a difference between how the US treats its people and how Canada treats its people and how people in Canada treat each other. Um, yeah, we give, we invisibilize, maybe not the violence that I experienced personally, but we invisibilize the violence on a general scale and we don't recognize our own capacities uh, to cause harm. Um, and we just say, oh, it happens down there, but it doesn't happen here. And when it definitely does, like violence happens here every day, all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're not far from a perfect place and not like there's any perfect place. There's no utopia, but there's certainly um, people who are striving to make things better. And um, there's definitely folks who cause harm. And when we, say, oh, Canada's so much better, we kind of ignore that that harm is happening and that, um, you know, um, yeah. that, that we're not perfect either. Yeah. Victoria may not have the violent and dramatic social disruption of torch-lit alt-right rallies or the government order to ban transgendered people from the military, but harm still occurs on a daily basis in our communities. I mean, I get called sir occasionally and I get called he occasionally. And um, what just 
you know, confuses me about that is not that someone is misunderstanding me because I think like men can look like a lot of different things. Like there are very effeminate men and that they're, they're still men. Um, I am not a man. I never have been a man. Um, even though I identified as, you know, a man at various points, I've never quite felt like that label adequately fit me. Um, but what I would, you know, hope and what I, what I want is that people will actually ask me how I want to be addressed as opposed to just assuming, um, you know, it's a, it's a natural form of protocol that we seem to overlook. It's just to not just make assumptions because, um, as my mom likes to say, assumptions make an ass out of you and me because it's ass you me assume. Yeah. She's, she's full of those wisdoms. It's these microaggressions which have caught Serena's attention. And that's where she thinks Victoria can improve the most. I'm less concerned these days about people who are blatantly against trans folks because for, well, for one, there isn't a heck of a lot of people who are like going to come out and say, oh, I don't like transgender folks in town. Um, You know, I'll get odd stares sometimes, but um, it's become less and less common. And I also can often attribute it just to misogyny in general, um, because, you know, women in general do get stared at a fair bit and it's not cool, but it's also quite common. So it's not just because I'm a trans woman necessarily, um, or it's maybe it's because I'm a brown woman. But like Maggie, Serena's focus is not solely on the blatant racism of the aggressors, but of the inaction of the bystanders. She understands that for people who aren't directly endangered by this negativity, it's easier not to act. But getting these bystanders and allies into action is the best way to build a more inclusive space. What we've, what I've, what I think I've seen definitely, both at home and in the larger um, arena, is um, in the larger kind of communities, is not just that emergence of that alt right, but also just a recognition that there is a great deal of complacency and um, inaction on the part of allies and folks who don't necessarily identify in the trans or queer communities, but identify as, you know, like supportive or trans adjacent or, um, yeah, allies, um, which, you know, I, I get it. Like these poor people don't experience these harms firsthand and they don't identify in these communities. So they don't necessarily aren't in the inside track kind of, not that trans people are our inside track of, trans communities and culture because it's like any culture you know you've it's created by the people and it's not like you have like a magic app on your phone that updates you uh, to the trans agenda every time something new happens you know um but um yeah i've seen a fair amount of complacency or um, devil's advocating. Um, so let's see, like validating both sides of an argument. For example, the fascist, you know, president who wants to, you know, uh, legislate transgender out of, uh, medical existence. Um, I've seen a lot of validation of that argument by saying that it's just as equally valid as the other argument. There's a tendency in our culture and in media to present both sides of an argument as if they're equal. For example, when 96% of scientists agree that global warming is human-caused, 
major media outlets still present the debates where the 96% and the 4% are given equal voices, which gives the impression that two sides were equally valid. When we play devil's advocate with trans issues, Serena says that hurts the community. And I think a lot about other people in my life who are just incredibly supportive, um, including my family. And um, I see, yeah, I see a great amount of support for my work and for my activism because I've intentionally selected to only keep the people in my life who are welcoming and supportive and to distance myself or engage in accountability work with people who aren't as supportive and recognize that they they have their own journey to go on and that doesn't necessarily include me in their lives um you know and then also it's healthy to you know not try to be everybody's friend because you know i i can be a bit of a people pleaser sometimes and um you know want to solve conflict conflict by appeasing people as opposed to stepping away or pushing back on their views. Um, and sometimes that's a survival strategy and sometimes that's just not doing the work that's necessary to loop people in and make them feel included in your community. This concept of limiting the scope of her work, keeping it to a manageable size is important not just to Serena, but to many activists. Change and awareness needs to happen on an individual basis through personal relationships. It's not Serena's job to educate entire communities about trans rights. Just as it's not a Lekwungen person's burden to facilitate nation-to-nation reconciliation. But we can all look within our communities for individual opportunities for growth and compassion. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like, you know, unintentional racism and unintentional transphobia and unintentional homophobia happen all the time and sometimes we let it slide and sometimes we do want to check in with the person because often they didn't mean to harm they just didn't quite understand where they were coming from or they didn't understand what they were how they were saying was hurtful um so but rather than just like shut that person off and just ignore them you know looping them in can be a huge beneficial opportunity for healing and growth um yeah uh, one of our main principles at AVP, the Anti-Violence Project, is that we, in addition to supporting people who have received harm, people who are survivors of sexualized violence and other forms of violence, we also do that work with people who have caused harm. Um, we support them in, in understanding how to be accountable and how to um, find ways and uh, behaviors that to express their emotions that are not... Um, aggressive or violent um and yeah i think it's it's like we're also recognizing that people who have caused harm have also experienced harm in the past and um often and it's like if we don't interrupt that cycle of violence we're only doing half of the work of supporting a community and culture that's safe and healthy there's always a choice whether we choose to educate someone who we think would benefit from teaching or whether to keep quiet and distance yourself from someone if you don't think the battle will be beneficial. I mean, unless they're directly advocating for harm to you, like, I think everybody is redeemable. And even then, like, they're just maybe a bit earlier on in their journey of understanding how to not be hurtful. Yeah, so it's incredibly emotionally taxing to 
you know, do this accountability work with folks and to like bring them back into the circle of, you know, friendship and support. And it's also incredibly necessary. Um, but I, I, part of that is recognizing that we all have the capacity to cause harm and that in order to be accountable, we need to recognize that like, for example, I have caused harm in the past, you know, I've never sexually assaulted someone, but, um, you know, there have been, you know, times where I have acted on, um, or unintentionally caused harm or said the, no, you know, something that was hurtful. And, um, it's important to be open and, um, reflexive about that in the sense that you listen to what people are telling you and you, um, I try to, you know, be active in um, your learning and growth, just like you would in any um, sort of um, accountability work. We as individuals and Victoria as a city can recognize the ways we've caused harm in the past. We need to stay open and reflective to the teachings from everyone in the community. Yeah, just recognizing those unconscious biases and barriers, which are really important to dismantle. It's a big job, and it can feel daunting, but Serena has some really good advice to keep improving incrementally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough, and it's not something I have all the answers to, but I think definitely, um, like, talk to your neighbors, talk to people, like, try to live in community with each other as opposed to becoming isolated or isolating others. I think this isn't work that I should just be on the people who are marginalized. I think if people who are allies, you know, for example, white cisgender folks, um, recognize, oh, this harm is still happening. Why don't, instead of just supporting the people who are marginalized directly, we can talk to people who share our identities or are in the majority or um, in places of privilege. And whether or not we improve, Serena sees another reason to have hope for the future. Yeah, youth are awesome. And they also you know, they have the most potential to grow out of all of us. Um, so it's so exciting to see where they'll grow and how they'll change the world. Yeah. I mean, also like the capacity for the youth to just create such beautiful artwork and such beautiful writing is I'm just so completely like blown away. Like if I'd had like these kind of resources when I was a kid, like one, I would have felt so much more supported. I would have had a community that I could connect with and feel safe around. And um, not that I didn't feel safe around my peers when I was their age, but that I just didn't quite felt like I fit in. Um, and I, yeah, I certainly would have realized my I was trans a lot earlier on and, you know, probably avoided a lot of grief, definitely avoided a lot of grief and mental health um, concerns. And, you know, uh, probably wouldn't have, you know, had a mental breakdown um, early a few years back and, you know, gotten involved with a guy who was very emotionally abusive. You know, like I think if I'd had these resources to help build that emotional capacity for like understanding and self reflection and um being able to read people better um i think yeah i think there's a lot of harms in my life that i would have been able to avoid um yeah and also like the harms that i've experienced in my life have also formed part of who i am and they've made me more resilient and more um 
and stronger. Um, I'm the little I'm doing is, you know, um, it's very little, honestly, you know, I see them like for like a few weekends a year, but, um, yeah, I have a lot of hope for the youth and they have such a capacity on their own to, you know, create agency for themselves and to advocate for themselves. Like we've had youth meet with, um, provincial like ministers, like the minister of education, Rob Fleming, um, to talk about policies for trans folks in schools. And like, I think that's so incredible to be able to, you know, have that impact at such a young age. Um, and why not, you know, the trans youth should be the, are the experts of how, um, their school experience should go and they should be, you know, influencing policy because, you know, it's not just the role of people who can vote and people who are of age to, you know, uh, talk about and benefit from these decisions made by government. It's also on people who are young because they still have that agency and they still have that understanding of the nuance and, um, of politics and, uh, policy. Yeah. Yeah, it's really inspiring to see. Yeah, if I'd had this kind of resource when I was young, I think, yeah, I would have just been a much happier child. <laughs> I was anxious. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Maggie and Serena have both experienced prejudice and bigotry firsthand, right here in Victoria. Most of their work to improve the city is at a grassroots level, one-on-one. We also wanted to talk to someone tackling these issues on an institutional level, someone who's worked to change the environment we all live in and make it more welcoming for every person who steps into it. That person is Dr. Lisa Gunderson. Uh, My name is Dr. Lisa Gunderson. I have been living in Victoria for the past seven years, came from the United States, specifically California. I was a tenured professor in California Uh, for about 13 years. My doctorate is in clinical psychology. I specialize in the area of children and racialized persons. So now here in Victoria, I do a couple of things. And one of them is I have my own company called One Love Consulting, where I'm an equity consultant, which basically means that I work with various organizations, uh, private, public, etc., to try to create environments where everybody can bring their whole selves and have an equitable environment. So whether that could be issues around race or gender or gender identity, um, abilities, etc. In her professional opinion, is Victoria as progressive as its stereotype suggests? I think depending on who you ask, they will say you're progressive or not. In my opinion, I think that Victoria is perhaps progressive in certain areas. For example, in the area of sexual orientation, it seems that they have been doing quite a bit around that. If you go and look at many of the high schools, for example, you'll find SOGI groups, Um, around issues of transgender identity. The school districts are looking into policies around that and trying to be more um, inclusive in those ways. But if you look around many, many places and schools, they don't seem to want to talk about race a whole lot. So around issues of racism, I find that it's pretty silent. And that's kind of my specialty area. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done with regard to that. 
As someone who used to live in the United States, Dr. Gunderson gets asked a lot how Victoria's inclusiveness compares to America's. Okay, so one example would be one of the common questions I tend to get from people from the city or just almost in Canada in general when they find out that I'm from the United States is, oh, are we less racist here in Canada? Isn't it less racist here than it is in the States? And I've decided that when I respond to that question, the way I do is I say, oh, are you planning on moving to the States? And they're like, what? And it's like, are you planning on going, moving to the States? And they're like, no. It's like, then the answer to that question is really irrelevant. Because if you think about it, you're trying to ask that question to minimize the racism that's happening here. And so I like to say, instead of that question, that's the wrong question to ask. The question is, how does racism present itself in Canada here? Do you think it's different than the way that it presents itself perhaps in the United States, right? And so part of it is understanding that we can't define who we are as Canadians by what we're not. And so it really doesn't matter the state of racism in another country. What matters is the state of racism here. And I try to express to people, when you engage in an incident or have a racial incident occur to you, it doesn't hurt less because it happened in Canada. It doesn't hurt less because the people are nicer. I recently heard a quote from Dr. Um, Robin D'Angelo, and she said, niceness is not anti-racism. Right. So I find that here there's a bit more um, passive aggressiveness when it comes to those issues. If you talk to some of my indigenous brothers and sisters or you talk to, for example, African-Canadians, you know, some of the racism is quite direct um, and we have a racial problem here. So if anybody ever asks you that question, it's not the right question to ask. Dr. Gunderson's insights match directly with the reflections we hear from Maggie earlier in this episode. Maggie was bullied in downtown Victoria because of the color of her skin. And one of her greater frustrations after the incident was not with the racist bully, but with the bystanders and police officers who didn't do enough to help her. Serena talks about this too, that allies who play devil's advocate are doing more harm than they realize. Dr. Gunderson works directly on these issues when teaching people how to create more inclusive communities. Just within our circles, one of the things that I do is I'm the community liaison for the African Heritage Association of Vancouver Island. Um, we're called a Javi. And there's a lot of things that happen in community that many people do not realize at all because we don't tell you. And so I think part of the thing with kind of progressives and especially if you're perhaps maybe a, a white progressive, is that you may have friends of different backgrounds and you're like, well, they never tell me anything. So I don't think anything's wrong. And one of the hints I'd like to give people is typically a racialized person will might tell you a story. And if they do, one, you should take that has a complete honor. The fact that they are trusting you enough to tell you about an experience that they've had um, means a lot. But if you come back to them with, oh, are you sure? Maybe it wasn't that way. I Maybe they didn't mean it. Or, you know, people, that's just back then. Or anything like that. Odds are the person will just look at you and smile and go, okay. But in their mind, they're like, 
I'm never going to speak to this person about this issue again. So it's very possible you could have friends that are of different backgrounds who have never shared that experience with you, which doesn't mean that the experiences don't exist. And we know that because we're getting them all the time. So I was at Tim Hortons and, you know, somebody stuck their hand in my hair because they liked it and they just think that's okay. And it's not an unusual experience for that to happen to us and to our young children. And we talk about it all along, all the time. It's so common. We even have a, um, a friend sent me an app and it really shows a woman. She's trying to basically get from one location, or house to the airport without people putting their hands in her hair. And it's a little game and you can slap it, slap the hands. And if you slap the hands successfully, you get to go on to your next destination. I mean, that's how common it is. <laughs> but some people listening now may be like, really? I can't believe that. Somebody did that to you? And so it is something where it leads to a very important point, I think, which is you have to trust the experiences of the people who are living it. You have to trust that our lived experience, we know more about that than you do. And that's something that I think is going to be very helpful in an environment like Victoria, where people don't necessarily think, see things they think as directly as they do in other places. But to us, it is direct, is to really sit and listen to what people are saying. And don't think that just because you don't know, it's not real or it doesn't exist. When a city like Victoria has a progressive stereotype, many well-intended people unknowingly cause harm if their definition of harm differs from the truth of what actual harm is, especially if their first priority is being a nice person. Dr. Gunderson cautions against equating kindness with inclusivity. And so I think it's really important that people don't necessarily connect the two. Oh, I'm a nice person. Therefore, I can't be sexist or racist or homophobic or anything else. Yeah, you can. And it's something that it's not a good or bad dynamic. And I think, unfortunately, that's kind of how we tend to look at it sometimes. And so I think it's important for people to kind of get out of their mind about the idea that they're quote unquote racist, because really, technically, racism is a systemic system. So when I talk to people, it's really about bias and we all have it. Every single one of us has bias. And because every single one of us has it, the trick is for us to figure out what is your bias? What is the thing that you're biased about? Figure that out and then work on that. Because if I say to you, you're racist, the probably what's going to pop up in your mind is, you know, the man who won't be named over down south or, you know, the Klan or some other kind of extremist groups of people. But the average person isn't like that. And that's not actually how racism as a system has been able to be maintained. It's not through the extremists. It's through regular, average, everyday people who are engaging in bias and not really taking note of that. Dr. Gunderson has homework for anyone who wants to do better for their community. If you take one thing out of this podcast today, please get rid of the terminology about being anything blind, colorblind, genderblind, but I'm going to stick with color for right now. It, I think it comes from a good space in the heart. It's the idea that you want to, you're trying to say, I'm going to treat you equally no matter what your race is. Okay. But the reality is that when you are doing that, you're actually erasing that person's history and their ancestry and their traditions and their customs. What 
you need to think about instead is not color blindness, but color equity. And in color equity, what we're saying is, I see you. I see all of you. Yes, you're black and you're beautiful. And it's just as equal as somebody who is white or somebody who is of an Asian background or, you know, European background, et cetera. It's, that's the equity there. And so we can start with our kids if they point somebody out and say, mom, look, he's black. Yeah, he is. And we all, he's got the color. And what is your skin color? Yep. Kids don't understand that it's not equitable until we say it isn't, right? And if you see somebody who's a wheelchair user and kids point that out and you're like, no, 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 we don't talk about that. No, there's different mobility, ways of mobility. Some people use their feet. Some people use a wheelchair. Some people, you make those decisions. Another piece of homework Dr. Gunderson suggests allies take on is investigating themselves. Allies can't expect to change the system until they fully understand their own biases. Somebody had said a long time ago, when you're a minoritized person, part of your survival is your ability to understand the dominant group, right? So if you are, um, if you are black, in my case, then in order for me to survive, I have to understand the white system and how that operates. And it's the same thing if you're female, if you identify as female, you have to kind of understand how the male system operates. And the difference is when you're in the dominant group, you don't have to understand the opposite to survive. So we're all complicit in this. How am I going to, what can I do to change the system? Well, it begins with you and learning not just about others, but learning about yourself and what has happened with your, you and your group in interactions with others, that some stuff has been positive, some stuff not positive. And how do I change that? Because at the end of the day, you're the one that's going to have to change it in terms of the systems, right? So when they talk about sexism, for example, who's the main, who do we need to speak to? Well, men need to talk to each other. (laughs) It's not really an issue, right? When you think about homophobia, it's like heterosexual people need to be talking to each other. That's what we need to do. The things that we know we say when others aren't in the room, right? People need to start having that honest conversation with themselves. And that's not something that we can help with. That's something that people who see themselves as progressive need to start having that conversation. Just like Serena finds hope in our youth, Dr. Gunderson reminds us to be patient. And remember that this kind of change takes time may take many generations before the world operates in a truly equitable fashion. And so when you are engaging in this work, you are planting the seed for something else that's going to come along. And I think a lot of people today, especially with the internet, expect instantaneous change or feel like they're not successful if they don't see the change. But you are standing on the shoulders of millions of people who never saw the change but they started sowing the seeds. So again, in my case, my ability to be sitting here with you today has a black person, has a woman, is on the shoulders of thousands and thousands of people who sacrificed and gave their lives for ideas that they never even were able gonna be able to see. And you may not live to see that, but you are going to be aiding in this space of equity. You are, you're helping and you can do that If you understand that it's not 100% necessary for you to see the fruits of your labor, you're, you're doing the labor. 
And I don't want anybody to ever stop doing that. So if you feel like it's exhausting and it gets tiring, it does. It does get frustrating, but you have to be hopeful because we're all here. Look around you. I mean, it's amazing. Look at Victoria and what in just in 30 years, people who grew up here, look around the city today. You absolutely know things are changing and going in a good direction. So I don't have to sit and harp on all the wonderful things that are happening here. Let's continue to focus on ways that we can get better. And if we do that, a hundred years from now, it's going to be something even more amazing. We posed the question at the start of this episode. How welcoming is Victoria to marginalized communities in contrast to the rest of the world? We learned from Maggie that hate crimes are still happening in present-day Victoria, and bystanders and police officers need to do a better job of stopping hate. We learned from Serena that microaggressions and devils advocating are just as harmful as blatant intolerance. But there's hope that the next generation of empowered youth will build a better future. And as Dr. Gunderson says, it doesn't matter what's going on in the United States. We need to focus on improving the city around us and learning our own history. Victoria is nowhere near perfect, but there's a lot to be grateful for. It's moving in the right direction, as long as we all keep working at it. A heartfelt thank you to our guests on this episode, Maggie Colliant, Serena Badendar, and Dr. Lisa Gunderson for sharing their insights. This episode of Taking Up Space was produced by Sarah Solomon with interviews by Katie Denslow and me, Shar Johnston-Carter, with script writing from Amy Atos. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. This program is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this episode, you should check out Full Circle's episode on the exoticization of Chinatown called Settler Mythologies and Chinatown. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, my name is Yukari Peerless, and it's been a pleasure helping out with the production of the CFUB podcast. I love podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, and so it was uh, such a fun experience for me to help out making our own podcasts and stories for CFUB. The interesting thing, the most interesting episode for me was the episode about the Chinatown, because I, because I go there all the time, and I know the people there, but I don't really know exactly how it started as a person of color. It was really interesting to learn how those people came to Victoria and hear the story from uh, Charlene Thornton Jones. She's a great friend of mine. Also, uh, John Adams, uh, everybody knows him. He is a great historian of Victoria. And yeah, it was such an honor for me to talk to those people and they hear their stories. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting um, experience. And I. Hope you enjoyed these episodes and hope you tune in next year as well. Maybe you can come and help us make podcasts as well. Happy listening. Cool.